evening, everyone. My name is Matt. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'd like to add my welcome. It's good to be with you this evening. I do feel like I belong here this evening, but I often feel like I'm on the outside looking in. Uh, it's like I can see everything I want and need, but I can't get it. It's unavailable to me. I'm on the outside looking in. A few nights ago, I went out to dinner with a few other pastors, and uh, we had just finished meeting for a few hours in the afternoon, and we were tired and hungry, maybe even a little hangry, and we just wanted to find a place to sit down and order some food and maybe have a glass of wine and relax a little bit. But it wasn't so easy. We were in that shadow land across the river, uh, Tyson's Corner. It's that place where Mufasa tells Simba, you must never go there. Uh, and we had to go find a place to eat, but it wasn't so easy. We, we looked up a place that had good ratings, and we drove two miles, which somehow took about 25 minutes, and we finally got there, and we waited in the line, and we saw all the people sitting in the beautiful restaurant eating amazing food and drinking their wine, and we thought we were on the verge of the promised land, and then we found out it was a 90-minute wait for a table. So, dejected, we said, let's go to the next restaurant, the one right next door, and we tried to go there. Same story. And we're about to lose it at this point. We don't want to get back in the car. And then one of our party spots across this six-lane road with cars, a huge, beautiful Brazilian steakhouse. And even from across the street, you can see the people inside. And you can see the things of meat that people are walking around with. And our, we start salivating. And so we say, let's go there. And we risk life and limb to cross the street. It's like that video game Frogger, but we make it, and we get there to these windows. We're making a beeline, and we come up, and we can see them. They're all right there, and they're kind of looking at us like, who are these guys? But it's all windows and no doors. <laughs> it's this big building. And we do, of course, to cut to the chase, we, of course, we find our way around. But at that moment, I thought, am I in some kind of Kafka-esque nightmare? Obviously, I'm not going hungry, but it felt that way. Am I ever going to find my way in? Do you, do you ever feel that way in your life, that you're just, it's right there in front of you. You can see it, but you can't get there. You ever feel that way about the Christian life? You hear in the Bible these great promises of God, things that are said about you and who you are and who God is for you, and they sound so great and all, but they just seem more like ideas than realities. They're put before you, but it's like you can't participate in them. You're just a spectator. I know that's how I certainly feel sometimes. It's how I feel sometimes as I read Jesus' description of our relationship to him in this John passage. As he starts out, uh, verse 14, chapter 14, verse 15, he says... If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is a, a really beautiful thing he's saying. It's speaking of this relationship in which I love him so much 
from the heart that I want to keep his word and I want to live in his commandments and I want to live in his ways, not as a burden, but as a joy and a delight. Experiencing his love for me and loving him in return. He even talks about it a little bit further on in terms of having your God having his home with you. And some of the times I hear these things, it's like I'm looking at this beautiful feast that Scripture's describing that I'm supposed to have, but it's like I can't find my way in. And I think there are a lot of us that feel this way at times about the Christian life. What is it that Jesus says to us about this situation? Does he say, oh, well, all that stuff that I'm talking about in the Bible, it's just a mirage. I don't really intend for you to enter into this love and obedience. No, he doesn't say that. Does he say, oh, well, you can have that, but it's all in heaven or the new creation and not before? No, he doesn't quite say that either. Instead, what we see him doing in this passage in John chapter 14 is his answer to this is to introduce us to a person, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He says that the way we get into the life that he holds out to us is through the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And today we'll start with just a basic introduction on the Spirit from Jesus before moving into uh, some of the more distinct ways in which he shapes our lives. And what I want you to see here in John 14 is who the Spirit is, how you can experience him, how you get him, and what he produces in your life. Um, So let's get into this passage. Before we do, let me pray. Come, creator spirit, and just as you hovered over the chaos in Genesis 1 to create order, Bring order to our lives. Do for us what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Open the eyes of our hearts. Be to us wisdom and revelation. Reveal to us the glorious riches of our inheritance. The love of the Father. Be in us the love for Christ that we so desperately need. Take my words, meager as they are, and speak them into our hearts this night. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Who is the Holy Spirit? I want you to focus on one little phrase that Jesus says about the Spirit here, and that is that he is another helper or in Greek, another paraclete, another helper. The Spirit is another like Jesus. He is the way in which the Father and the Son come to us and make their home in us. He is the continuation and the actualization of everything that Jesus is and does. He is another helper. When Jesus lays out this lofty vision of life as one of loving him and keeping his commandments, he knows this is something we're naturally cut off from. 
And so in the very next verse, he tells us, here's how you're going to get this. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. He promises a helper because he knows we're helpless. And Jesus is looking forward here to someone who is both distinct from himself and yet perfectly continuous with everything he is and has been working toward. Jesus is a helper, one who has been called alongside humanity as an advocate. The Spirit is another helper. Uh, Saint Irenaeus talks about the Son and the Spirit being the two hands of the Father, both working towards the same thing, distinct, but always working in tandem towards the same thing. I want to say something kind of controversial. I like shock value, so this will border on heretical for some of you. Ready? Jesus is not enough. What do you think? Jesus is not enough. There must be something more than just what Jesus has done and who he is, that that work must be brought to completion in our lives. Now, at the risk of sounding heretical, I say to that, yes, but lest you think I'm really a heretic, let me read you something from John Calvin, who is on my team. I don't know why that's funny. John Calvin says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. In other words, everything that Christ is and does, while complete and sufficient in and of itself, has to become real in us and for us. We have to be joined to it and become participants in it. And the only way that happens is by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, this one who is another helper. The Holy Spirit takes what is objectively true in Jesus Christ and makes it a subjective reality in our lives. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what does he call the Spirit? Here in verse 17, he is the Spirit of truth. Taking what would otherwise be two-dimensional and making it three-dimensional in our lives, bringing us as participants in it. Let me just say, if you feel disconnected from God... If this has all to you become doctrine or ideas that you hear about but you don't experience in your heart and your mind, what you need is for the Holy Spirit to come into your life in a fresh way and make these things real to you. You know, Scripture says that we all receive the Holy Spirit when we become Christians. We were baptized into not only the name of the Father and of the Son, but of the Holy Spirit. But it also tells us all the time to, to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. There's this need for us to continually receive the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I don't think most of the people in this room... we. 
need more propositional knowledge. That's not the priority number one for us. I mean, I'm sure you all could learn a lot of things, but what we really need is personal knowledge to make the things we know real to us. And only when this happens will you find yourself moved in love and obedience toward God. This is who the Spirit is. He is another helper like Jesus who comes to take what is true in Christ and make it true and real in us. He's a continuation and the realization of all that Jesus is and does in our lives. So how do we experience the Spirit? This is simple. The Holy Spirit will come to us. He will come to us as a gift. He will come to us, not we, to him. He must be received as a gift. Look at how the Holy Spirit is said to enter the lives of the disciples here. It starts in verse 16. It's not with anything they do, but it's what the Father and the Son do. The Son asks for the Holy Spirit, and the Father gives the Holy Spirit. It's a promise. He will give. In verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. See, Jesus is speaking of the coming of the Spirit as his own coming. And it's something he does. In verse 26, Jesus says, The Father will send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, on his account, on his merit, not ours. From start to finish, the coming of the Holy Spirit into our lives has the character of a gift. He is a gift from the Father on account of of the Son, the gift of all that Jesus is and does for us, the gift of divine presence. There's nothing better than this gift, by the way. There's nothing that even compares to God's presence. The psalmist, Psalm 1611 says, there is fullness of joy forevermore in your presence. It's better than wealth, it's better than status, it's better than sex, it's better than food. God's presence through the Holy Spirit is infinitely valuable, and he says we can have this as a gift. If you want a gift, how do you get it? Uh, as adults in our culture, we've somehow come to think that you can't really just ask for a gift. You know, if you want a gift from someone, you have to either just hope they know, or you've got to leave little hints here and there. And, and, you know, you can't look like you're angling for it, right? Then it wouldn't be a gift, not in the way. And, and of course, we would, that would be shameful. We're above that. But you know you want that particular gift. You know you're angling for it in subtle ways. The scriptures tell us instead to be like my little three-year-old who comes right out and asks for the gifts that he wants. Sometimes he doesn't even know what he wants. He says, Daddy, can I have a present? Like, no, it's your sister's birthday. I want a present. And honestly, he's so cute, and I, I love him so much that if I can possibly give him something, and I know it's not going to spoil him or ruin his life, I want to find something to give him. Right? And Jesus tells us that the way we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit is by shamelessly asking for it, like little children. We're supposed to come out and just ask for the gift shamelessly and constantly. That's what Jesus is getting at, not here in John, but in, in Luke 11. 
He's saying, ask and it will be given to you. Speaking of prayer, the life of prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit will come to us. Are you asking for the filling of the Holy Spirit? Are you praying for God's presence in your life? You know, spiritual disciplines, the point of them is basically to uh, set aside time and space to ask for the gift. To set aside time and space to block out other things that cloud us from doing this, from asking and receiving this gift. To adopt the posture of reception of the presence of God who wants to come and be with us. There are practices that help us do that positively, and there are practices that help us bracket all the other things we fill ourselves with so that we can be filled and enjoy his presence. I've been so happy to hear that Elise is doing contemplative prayer. I'm sure you're talking about much more than this, probably better than this, but that we're thinking about and learning about how to enjoy the presence of God. The Holy Spirit will come to us. He will come to us. We receive him as a gift. Here's the last simple thing I want to say out of this passage. And it has to do with what the Spirit produces in our lives. And it's peace. He is our peace. The Spirit is the presence of the resurrected one in the midst of suffering. Jesus' disciples have every reason to fear as he's giving them this, in these chapters of John, we're hearing his last will and testament, essentially. He, they are following a Lord who has said, I am going to the cross. And in following him, they are embarking on a life that will involve them in suffering and risk and shame, and even for many of them in death. And that's really part of the life of every Christian person. To participate in life of love and obedience for God is to experience suffering and hardship in the world. Sometimes it's from internal forces as we battle our own desires. Sometimes it's from external forces as we face shame and even persecution. And other times it's from this spiritual attack, the world and the flesh and the devil. Usually some combination of the three, they like to work together. And yet, in the midst of this fearful situation, What does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, what am I leaving you in my last will and testament? And it's peace. What is your inheritance, Christian? Peace. Peace I leave with you. Not just any peace, not a vague sense of peace. My peace I give to you. Well, what is this peace? It's not just a feeling. It's Jesus' peace. It is the person and presence of God the Holy Spirit in our lives, providing peace by, by being the sustaining presence of God in the midst of life. Does this peace fix everything? You know, one of the things I find that we get wrong about the Holy Spirit sometimes, um, especially those who talk about the Spirit a lot, is We can talk about the Spirit as if he's going to fix everything, like he's this utopian answer to everything. If you only had the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have problems in your lives. 
That's not the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about. The peace that Jesus is talking about is his peace. Well, what is his peace? He's going to the cross. But it's a trust in the Father and a hope in the resurrection in the midst of that. And for us, it's a peace that even when things are not all right, that we can bear the things that we're going through. And it's a peace that is there's just the presence of God. And this, the peace of the Spirit goes beyond anything the world can offer. Jesus says, not as the world gives do I give to you. The world doesn't actually have peace to give. The world still has to suffer and die. The world offers a, a sort of vacillation between denial and despair. Denial and despair. Denial and despair of what is really happening around us and in us and to us. But Jesus offers us the hope of resurrection, the presence of the God who raises the dead. Not as a denial, but as the embrace of the life that he has called us to, a life of taking up our cross. And it's a peace that you can't even argue for because it's just the presence of God. Paul calls it a peace that surpasses all understanding. As I thought about this this week, I felt very convicted about all the things that trouble my heart and how petty they are and how small they are. And I thought in contrast with some of the people I know, very ordinary people going through incredible times of suffering, who still, and they will tell you how grueling it is and difficult, but who still have peace in the midst of that. And it's because they are in the presence of God. And I thought, I, something is wrong with me if I'm not experiencing that. So I would encourage you with me over the next three to four weeks as we go into and, and get ready for and go into Advent, that you join me in earnestly asking the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and fill us in a fresh way to make all these things that we talk about. You know, what does Paul say in Ephesians? What does he want the Ephesians to know? The hope to which he has called you, the riches of the glorious of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. We're not looking for emotion here. We're looking for those things. I'll tell you what, if I really knew the glorious inheritance that I am called to, I would probably have some emotional response, wouldn't I? You would too. So that might come in your life, but what we really need is the work of the Spirit to bring these things to reality before us, to give us his peace, to come have God make his home with us in new and fresh ways as individuals and as a community. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.